The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you speak to us. You speak day by day, many ways and many moments, but you particularly speak to us this morning from your word. Do that every week. You promise to do that. And so we ask you, keep your promise, please. Speak this morning. Speak from this passage in front of us and make it clear to us. Help us to understand it us to understand the facts that are here, all the details that we're going to have to trace out, but help us to understand and to meet you. Speak, please. Draw us on after you, deepen our faith and our hope in you. Glorify your name in our hearts individually, in this people corporately, and then through us in the world. It's our request to do it this morning, Lord, speak through your passage here. Thank you. Amen. As we turn our attention this morning to the second half of Matthew chapter 2, we find more answers to the types of foundational questions that people have always wondered about the Christian faith, even people in the church. Things like, is this Jesus really the one? Is he really the Christ, the, the one that was sent is he, is he really the guy God pointed out to us? And how do we know that? We've been taught that, but is there any evidence for it? And for that matter, if he is the Christ, if he is the one sent to be Savior and King, then what does that mean? What does it mean that he's Savior? What does it mean that he's King? Matthew's been answering these types of questions now for the last chapter and a half. He's been showing us different details about Jesus' origin, his lineage, his miraculous conception and birth, all for the sake of explaining to us, sent as Savior, sent to be King. The Scriptures foretold these details, and then they came to pass. He's been showing us all that by telling us the stories of Joseph and Mary and the wise men and Herod. That's what brings us to our passage this morning. Three more short vignettes all linked together as they tell us more of Jesus' early life story. And each of them showing us something fulfilled, foretold and fulfilled. It has given greater weight or, or, or deeper depth to it and, and really some sense of resolution, something that was said in the past, now resolved. Jesus is the one the prophets were pointing to, that they were talking about, and that then means something for us. There's, there's evidence here about that. And this is complex. What we're going to look at this morning, it, it's not simple. It, it will require us to think a little bit. But what we find here is evidence that then, I think, should at the end encourage us and point out something that is true for Christ and then true for us, freedom and life and also scorn and rejection. It kind of rises out of this passage today. It's what we're going to look at here at the end of Matthew chapter 2. So let me 
read the passages one at a time, and I'm going to pause after each one to point out a detail or two to help us understand it. And then I'll, at the end, draw two overarching observations that are of very unequal length. The first one is the main one. It's much longer, and the second one is pretty short. So let's begin reading verse 13. And as I said, I'll pause throughout. Matthew 2, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So an angel had first appeared to Joseph in a dream back in chapter 1 to explain to him what was going on with the whole conception of Jesus. And an angel appears now three more times, as we're going to see in, this, in these passages, every time giving Joseph very specific direction for Joseph and the child and his mother. This is the, the hand of God sovereignly, heavily, explicitly on all of this, controlling all the details to protect particularly the child and the mission that the child is about. And here in this passage, the angel warns of Herod's murderous intentions. And so Joseph immediately that night takes the family and they leave and they begin the several-day journey on to Egypt. At this point in history, there were a lot of Jewish people living in Egypt, so that would have been a natural place to go. And he flees to there and stays until Herod's death, at which point they leave Egypt and come back to Israel. And so, like each of the other two passages, this one ends with a statement of fulfillment. Here it's from Hosea chapter 11. Out of Egypt I called my son. That, here's verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then, what was, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. As we saw previously, Herod had asked the wise men who were seeking out Jesus to tell him when and where they found him because he wanted to go honor him, he said. Of course, he actually wanted to go kill him. And when the wise men are warned, again, by an angel in a dream, there's the sovereign hand of God again, they're warned, don't go back. So they depart by a different way. Herod realizes he's been tricked and so in a rage tries to, decides to wipe out everybody who it possibly could be and every male two years and younger is killed. Now, it's not a big area, small town, so it's probably no more than 10 or 15 children. So it's not surprising that that doesn't show up in any history account. Herod killed a lot of people. 15 more little boys but of course, for their families and for that community, a tragedy. And when it happened, as the text says, 
Then was fulfilled what was said in Jeremiah, and you get the quote there about Rachel in Ramah, an area in, in the vicinity, weeping over her children who were gone. Verse 19 then. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So Herod kills these little boys, but shortly after, Herod himself died, and Joseph, and therefore Jesus, spoken to again in a dream, is called out of Egypt, and he goes back to Israel, probably going back to Bethlehem at first, but realizing it's not quite safe to be that close to Jerusalem just quite yet. He's again warned, and he takes a little family north to Galilee to a little town called Nazareth a relatively new town, even smaller than Bethlehem. Just a little bitty place, a few hundred people, well off the beaten path. And they went there, quote, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he'd be called a Nazarene. Interestingly and importantly, that concluding fulfillment statement is quite different from the first two, the ones that we saw in verse 15 and verse 18. It mentions the prophets, but in the plural and doesn't mention anyone specifically. And the actual wording, this comes through much more clearly in the original language, but the actual grammar doesn't have the same grammatical cues indicating a direct quotation, which is all appropriate because if you realize it, that statement, he shall be called a Nazarene, isn't actually in the Old Testament anywhere. Fitting, because the town of Nazareth didn't exist yet in the time of the Old Testament. It wasn't even founded until after the Old Testament was finished. So, this has puzzled a lot of people. They look at this and wonder, what do you make of that? You've got a, a quote here about some place that it, the quote doesn't exist and the place doesn't exist. What do you do with that? Well, and actually, the explanation is not that complicated in the end. And we'll come to that in the shorter second observation. But first, we turn to the larger main point. Here's the first observation that captures the two linked ideas in the first two vignettes. Here it is. As God's true son... Jesus is our way out of slavery and sorrow into God's new blessing. So that's long. Let me say that again. As God's true son, Jesus is our way out of slavery and sorrow into God's new blessing. Up to this point, we've talked a lot about Jesus and sonship. 
If you go back several weeks to the Old Testament when we were considering the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel, we saw there that God promised David that his sons after him, God said he would claim them uniquely and say, I'll be a father to them, they'll be my son. He's going to uniquely identify with all of the, the kings from the line of David. But one in particular was coming, the great king, the Messiah, that he would say, this one is special, this one is my beloved son uniquely mine. And then we come to Matthew and we see that Matthew is very careful to show that Jesus is descended from David. He's in that line. He's in that royal Davidic kingly line. But he's not any man's son. He's conceived of the Holy Spirit. So he's very uniquely God's son. And all this language all fits together. He's the Messiah come through the line of David, but adopted into it. He's not actually of any man. He's of God, very uniquely the son of God, the Messiah. That all is, we've seen that before, but verse 15 here takes that idea of Jesus and sonship and takes it to another level and in a slightly different direction. As we notice this, we realize that we need to think a bit differently about the idea of prophecy and fulfillment. This is where this begins to get a little complicated. Prophecy and fulfillment. We often, I think probably most of us, often think about that in what you might call like, like a straight-line predictive sense. And that happens in the Bible. It happened in previous passage. The Old Testament talks about the birthplace of the Messiah. Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Dot, dot, dot. You kind of move a straight line through history. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Straight line prediction. Very clear. That happens. The problem is that we think that's how it always happens, and actually it's more frequently something else. Prophecy and fulfillment in the Bible usually works with something that I might call like a, a model or a type pattern. Something exists back here. Maybe not expressly spoken, but something exists or it occurs and it, it's there and it, it has real meaning in the moment. It has an effect, but for one reason or another, it kind of makes you ask some questions because it doesn't quite seem complete or full or done. Makes you wonder. A bit like if you were to look at the wall and you see an electrical socket and you see there a socket with two vertical slits and beneath it one round hole. You look at that and you have in your hand a two-pronged plug. Just two slits. Two, two prongs stick out. And you look at that and you say, okay, and it works. Stick it into the socket, the lamp comes on. It works. Everything's fine. But it kind of makes you wonder, what's, what's with the hole? What's with, it's not, it doesn't seem quite done yet. There's something that the, the hole there predicts, speaks about that you don't have yet. And you wonder, well, what is it? And then you find a three-pronged plug on the new appliance you just bought and it fits right in and it fulfills the predicted pattern. And it works. Works better. Works safer, actually. 
that kind of, of prophecy and fulfillment happens all over the Bible. Lots and lots of places. Think of the sacrificial system. Think of the temple. Think of the, the priesthood. Often these systems exist and they're always pointing ahead at Jesus in some way or another. That kind of thing happens everywhere. That's what's happening here in Matthew. And I'm saying this is simple. It is much more complicated than some straight line predictive pattern. But when you figure it out, when you see it, it's actually more profound. It has a different sort of punch to it. So let's think about this. Throughout the Old Testament, God claimed all of the people of Israel as his children. All of them were his, and he spoke of them collectively as my people. And one day, when God's children were oppressed and held in slavery in Egypt, God powerfully broke them free, called them to himself to live with him in the land of promised rest, to worship him, to be with him, to enjoy him. He summoned his people out of bondage in Egypt, or, expressed in the singular, he called his son out of Egypt. That's what Hosea 11.1 1 says. That's the verse quoted in our passage. God caused the exodus because God had a goal. He had a purpose, a, a desire that his son, his people, would not live in a foreign land under the power of somebody else, but would live with him in his land under his rule and reign, under his blessing. He wanted that for his people, so in love, he called them out to come and live with him in the land of promised rest. That was God's goal. Did it happen? Hosea 11 is about this. When verse 15 connects us back to Hosea chapter 11, Matthew assumes his readers know that chapter, know what's going on there, and it kind of pops into their mind. That's why he drops us off in that context. But most of us don't know what's going on in Hosea chapter 11. So here it is in brief. And let me just say, as an aside, as I was writing this, I thought, is there any way I can skip all this? Because I think people might want me to skip all this. And the answer is no. I can't skip this because this is how it works. This is what's going on in Matthew. And you kind of got to see the, the pattern rise out of the Old Testament because then when we come to Jesus, it, it, it fits. So here's what's going on in Hosea 11. God called his people out. Hosea is a book full of hard stuff. Lots and lots of hard stuff. Because Read Hosea, what, what you're reading there is God near the very end of his rope. Because his purpose in calling the people out of slavery and into the land, the, the desire to be with them, for him to worship, for them to worship him and him to bless them, that was his goal, and it didn't happen. They came in and wandered away from him. Repeatedly, constantly, grievously. And so over years, he called them back and called them back and called them back. 
But at this point in Hosea, we're very near the end, and the great judgment of the exile is coming. God's going to kick them out of the land, and the sin of the people has become extreme. So there is a lot of hard in the book of Hosea, but not everything. Chapter 11, where our verse puts us, the context where our verse puts us, chapter 11 has a lot of sweet and positive things in it. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. That's 11.1. That's our verse. God begins, the contrast with the rest of the book is sharp. God begins by saying, I remember my love for my people. Who, if we're honest, are constantly running away. Verse 2 of Hosea 11. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. But still, here's the Lord in verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. You can see them like helping a little kid walk. You hold them by the arms. I helped them learn to walk. I cared for him. I led him with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I cared for him and I fed them. And yet the people are bent on running away. This is Hosea, the beginning of chapter 11. God, in compassion and caring and lifting up and teaching them and carrying them like a father carries a child, and they bolt constantly. So what does Hosea 11 tell us is coming? Exile and destruction, but not permanent exile and destruction because of the character of God. This, it keeps oozing out, verses 8 and following. It's just the character of God. He, he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I am God, not a man. Meaning, a man would look at this and say, if you're going to run, run. And frankly, this is totally messed up. It's, it's wreck. I'm going to throw it away. But I'm God. I'm not a man. I can't throw you away. I have a concern. I have a goal. I have a desire for you. And it lasts. So, he continues, I'm going to roar like a lion. And my children shall come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes. Do you see that? He's going to call them out of Egypt again. He's going to call them out of all the other places where they are once again slaves because of their sin. He's going to bring them back as in a second exodus. Exile is coming in great punishment but God in love is going to act in power to fix the problem. He's going to roar like a lion. I call them, they run. So I'm going to roar. And then they'll come. And they'll come back to their home. And they'll dwell with me here in the land safely and securely. And everything will be fine when God calls them back. That's a prophetic prediction. Hosea 11. That's a big round hole. Because that's not what happened. Now they came back, but not like that. Nothing actually changed. 
But it's a prediction because can you imagine the return that he's talking about from the exile when God in compassion calls them back and holds them near in love and he fixes their wandering hearts, not by just calling out, but by doing something powerful to change how they view him. And they're no longer slaves, but they dwell at home. That would be awesome if. That's Hosea 11. Very similar to what we see in Jeremiah. Jeremiah takes it a step further. As Matthew tells us of Herod's murderous rampage, he then says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken through Jeremiah. And he quotes from Jeremiah 31. Now, let me pause right there because some of you just experienced some of how this is supposed to work. I said Hosea 11, and a lot of us said, I think that's in the Old Testament. I said Jeremiah 31, and some of us said, wait a minute, I know what's in Jeremiah 31. Uh-huh. Exactly. This is not a random quote. None of these are random quotes. Matthew did not, like, look over the Bible to find, okay, I got people weeping because their sons just got murdered. Where can I find some Bible verses about sorrow? And he grabbed one. There's a ton of verses in the Old Testament about sorrow and tears and crying and hardship and pain. He picked this one in particular because of the context in which this quote sits. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is a very long chapter and it is full of hope. This quoted verse is just about the only negative thing in the whole chapter. Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel herself is long gone by the time Jeremiah writes, but she's depicted here as the figurative mother of the people of Israel and she's weeping over her children who are no more, not because they're dead, not because Herod murdered them, but because they're gone, carried off into exile. There's that topic again. Same topic as before. God's great judgment due to people's sin. See a pattern here. He carried off the people because of exile. There's a sorrow because of sin-induced separation from God and separation from God's blessing and separation from God's peace. And that's where Matthew puts us specifically when he quotes this. But the very next verse in Jeremiah 31, right after this verse about weeping, the very next verse speaks to the end of sorrow and the drying up of tears because the Lord says there is hope. And the whole chapter is full of hope. If you know Jeremiah 31, you know it's everywhere. He says things like, I will call the people back. I'll call the children home to their own country. I'll restore their fortunes. I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. Behold, the days are coming when I will watch over them and build them to plant. There's so much good sentence after sentence after sentence in all of Jeremiah 31. And then there's this. Behold, the days are coming, says, says the Lord and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Jeremiah 31 is about the new covenant. Who knew? Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. 
This is the new covenant that I'm going to make. I'm going to put my law within their hearts. I'm going to change them from the inside out. And they'll all know me, not know about me, not know other people who know me. Each one of them will know me personally. And I will walk with them and be their God and they will be my people. And I will forgive all their iniquity and I will wipe away all of their sins. Remember it no more. And then the chapter ends with this. A great promise for the city of God, it is for the people of God. It will not be uprooted or overthrown anymore forever. Another great predictive prophecy. Do you see the pattern? People, sin, wandering, running from God, sent off, lost into slavery, but God in power is going to act and bring them back. He'll turn their sorrow to joy, and it will be an everlasting joy that will never be compromised again. It will never be uprooted. It will never be overthrown. The saving power of God is going to do that. Sorrow marks the beginning, but it's not the last word. God's powerful, compassionate love has the last word, and the last word is actually a new word. It's the new covenant where everything is made different changed when not any time in the Old Testament not any time in the Old Testament and Matthew and every one of his readers knew that this is the pattern held out it's, it's put there on the wall you got two slits and a round hole but it never actually happened yeah the people came back yeah it, it works they came back out of slavery and they were never they, they were not under the power of Babylon anymore or Assyria or Egypt they lived there they had their own fields they had their own government in some sense but every thoughtful observer knew this is still a wreck the book of Nehemiah talks about the people coming back and the people starting to wander same book a wreck when Hosea and Jeremiah talk about this pattern, but when was it ever fulfilled? And Matthew says, essentially, look, a three-prong plug. His name is Jesus. Watch this. When was this ever going to happen? When was it ever going to be accomplished? When, when was it be fulfilled? Yeah, they came back, but they didn't really come back. When? Well, when God's unique son, Jesus, came. And the sin of Israel once again sent God's son out of the land. And Rachel wept again because of that sin-caused pain. And the son of God went away into a foreign land, but was called back by God. When that happened, what do we see? Well, that son grew up and he walked with God faithfully, perfectly, righteously, holy, just, pure, unlike any other son ever did. This one walked with the Lord. And he grew in wisdom and in knowledge and stature 
And then he came to teach and minister in astonishing power, and he broke the power of the curse. The blind see, the lame walk, the prisoners are set free, and he cast out demonic powers and cast down evil human powers. And when those powers killed the son in the end, death itself could not hold him, and he rose from the dead again, came back to life, resurrected, and then poured out the Spirit. The new covenant happened. And all of those in this Son then, they, like Him, become increasingly righteous and increasingly holy. And they walk full of the Holy Spirit themselves. Just like was predicted, it all happens. This is three prongs and it fits right in. And people are changed. It's new. It's real. It happened. That's complicated. And that's what Matthew's saying. You don't know this is all being fulfilled when you look at baby Jesus in the manger. You gotta watch it all get played out all the way to the end and then you realize this is the one. Descended from the line of David. David. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. A Savior from our sins. His name's Jesus. What his name means. Born in Bethlehem, gathering the nations to worship him and the locals to reject him. And that rejection sends him out of the land again, but he's called back. And when he comes back, the pattern is completed. It actually happens that the Son dwells with God in worship and in holiness, and everyone in him likewise. This is the guy. This is the guy. Who else could it possibly be? That's complicated. And deep. I think even deeper than the straight line prediction stuff because there were frankly a lot of people born in Bethlehem. But nobody did this. Jesus is the Christ. Here's the evidence. Profound. But don't just get lost in that. And this is the great danger that I've had to spend so much time working through so many details that seem perhaps distant from yesterday's marital problem. The danger here is that that's going to either seem completely irrelevant and this sermon made no sense to me, or I already believe that anyway. So, I mean, I knew Jesus was the Christ, so why bother? Well, this is... I think a much more profound way of putting the Jenga tower back together. I think it matters. But don't get lost in the details, the, the, the proving aspect of the passage. Notice he is the Christ, which means what? Which means that the pattern is fulfilled for you. Now, the rest of this book is about that, so... We're not going to unpack all of that this morning. But what that means is that you live brought back from slavery different than the Israelites. You live brought out of sorrow 
different than the Israelites. You live brought into the land of promise, blessing, the land of rest. You live in the new covenant, different than any Israelite. If Jesus is the Christ, what that means for you is that you are a new covenant son or daughter. You're God's child indwelt by the Holy Spirit and you know him. Your sins are forgiven and you will never, ever, ever be cast out again. The pattern is completed. Your sin will never lead you to be thrown away into the foreign land. It'll never make you an object of God's wrath. You will never be alienated from him again. You are brought near, made to dwell right next to him forever and ever and ever. Because Jesus is the true son. And in him, you're brought near. That's true for you. You know those things, remember those things, and be reinforced in those things as you see Jesus fit and fulfill what was predicted but never actually happened until Christ. That's your reality. You live now set free from slavery, delivered from sorrow into the new covenant. That's good news. That's true of you. And so is the second point, which is much shorter. This saving son and his followers will be marginalized, mocked, and rejected. This saving son and his followers will be marginalized, mocked, and rejected. The point of these things here back to back is to say, don't think that the second point nullifies the first point. They actually go together. He is the son. He is the way out. And he's mocked and rejected. They both go together. As the last paragraph traces out the details in Joseph taking Jesus and Mary up to Galilee and to the town of Nazareth, it concludes with that statement about Jesus being in Nazarene, which is confusing, as I said, because that's not in the Bible anywhere. Well, Matthew doesn't actually say that it is. This is perhaps one of the ways where our reading of our English text makes it look like it is because it's put there in quotes and it looks just like the other ones. But it's not a quote from a prophet. It's what people would call him. They will say, he's a Nazarene. Which is to say, he's a nobody. You get a feel of this in John chapter 1 when Jesus is calling his initial disciples and one, disciple, one would-be disciple says, another would-be disciple, hey, come meet this guy from Nazareth and a guy who's going to be one of Jesus' disciples says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Meaning, of course not. He's from Nazareth? Give me a break. He's a hick from the sticks. Nazareth, rural Galilee, is like how some northerners view the rural south. 
or how most Americans view Appalachia. I'm not saying this is nice. I'm saying this is true. How do most Americans think of Appalachia? He's a Nazarene. Come on, he probably walks around with a piece of straw sticking out from his two remaining teeth. There's no way he's the Messiah, the king sent from God. Give me a break. He's a hillbilly. He's a redneck. He's a nobody. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Mountains of West Virginia. Come on. That's how people think of other people. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that's true. And that kind of bias, slander, followed Jesus his entire earthly life, and it trails Jesus' followers too, just like the prophets predicted. He'd be called a nobody, meaningless and unimportant. Isaiah 53 could be a prime example. He, that is Messiah, had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, one who, for men, hide their faces. He is despised and we esteemed him not. He's a Nazarene. He's a hillbilly. God sent Jesus to a manger in teeny tiny Bethlehem. And as a nomad to Egypt and then into the sticks of Galilee, he was lowly and humble in every material way. And then he bore the scorn and rejection of a world that is arrogant and full of itself in every way. And finally, as it, the world cursed him and finally killed him, crucified him, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows to set us free from sorrow and slavery, free from sin and to bring us into full, glorious sonship, to bring us into the place where the smile of God and every conceivable blessing is ours. That was the path that God chose and very sovereignly, specifically directed Jesus onto. Here to this place, here to this manger, here to this foreign country, here to this little bitty town, all to shame those who think a lot of themselves and to deliver them because that's us. Jesus is this Christ. He fits. And what he brings to you, Christian, is deliverance from and deliverance to. And it will bring also rejection and scorn. Yep, sure. But also it brings you eventually the glory of the kingdom. That's who he is, what he does. Let me pray. Father, help us to believe these things. Help us to understand these things. Some complicated, some distant perhaps, but help us to understand them and to see in it your kindness and your compassion towards us. Lord, we need you. We need your help for this. So will you meet with us now and teach, and will you continue to meet with us now and teach as we look towards communion? Build your people, Lord. And thank you for what we're about to celebrate. 
the cup of the new covenant that is in the blood of Christ. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.